0: Hello and welcome to episode 40 of Prosperity by the Pint, episode four zero. So those of us that have been here with the beginning, I hope you've noticed an improvement and we're getting better at this all the time. This is a podcast where we talk about money, investing, business and life success all while enjoying a cold beer. I'm your host, Bryce Carter, Certified Financial Planner, Chartered Financial Consultant, and Certified Investment Management Analyst. Today, I have a very special guest with me. I'm going to let him introduce himself, but his name is Michael Riggs. Michael?
1: My name is Mike Rick. <laughs> That's me. I'm a senior strategist with State Street Global Advisors. Uh, and this is actually my 25th year. 25 years at State Street. I am an old timer. Yeah, old timer. Right.
0: Well, I'm, a, I'm yeah. pumped to have Mike here. We're going to talk about State Street in a minute. We're going to talk about some ETFs. We're going to talk about a lot of things. It's going to be fun. Um, but, as always, the cold beer portion from uh, Alpena, Michigan, it actually says the scenic uh alpena michigan austin brothers brewery the 45er ipa uh and they call it the 45er because alpena michigan is on the 45th parallel so that's fun so we'll give this a few tries this is seven percent ipa and I'll let you know how we like it at the end of the episode but uh thanks for being here mike thank you so those that don't know what is state street <laughs> state street uh global advisors state street bank what 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 what, what are they
1: Sure. Well, to start with, State Street was originally founded as a bank—a bank, bank, like we think of banks today. Yeah. Uh, But way, way back, more than two hundred years ago.
0: I Uh, I had to look this up, but uh, State Street is the second oldest. Continuously operated bank in the United States.
1: Yes. Yes. And we still hold a bank charter. But probably about 40 years ago, we transitioned from a traditional bank, Mm -hmm. uh, as you think a retail bank, into doing banking for institutional clients. So those would be big pension funds, endowments, uh, et cetera, and then basically doing what we call custody. So we do really the accounting for the investments of those large uh, institutions.
0: And and you're the or second largest custody bank in the world, is that right? Yes,
1: yes we are. That yeah. is correct. Wow. Yeah. So
0: that's that's a lot of money. I don't know what the custody bank world looks like, but it's we're we're talking in the tens of trillions. Or yeah,
1: you're talking in the tens of trillions for custodied. Wow assets that is a at State Street. Yeah.
0: Incomprehensible number. Yes.
1: Yes. I always <laughs> like it? to say uh, if you think uh, a trillion, just think of a billion, you couldn't count to a billion in your lifetime. So a trillion is a pretty, pretty large number. Yeah,
0: it is. Well, this is good. I like this, this beer. So um, so you've been with State Street for 25 years and, and what, what do you do there?
1: So my role really is a a product expert, an ETF exchange traded fund Mm -hmm. product expert. And we help advisors uh, and institutions implement ETFs into their portfolio to help them meet their goals and their objectives for investing.
0: Right, and so uh, your job is to go and meet with with financial advisors and other institutional, not not direct consumers, not the end consumer. No, and no. and and teach us and me. I'm saying me as a financial advisor a better way to use ETFs or how to use them or what types we should be using and so on and so forth on behalf of Spider, which is is that a, an actual. Other company besides State Street, or is just a brand?
1: So SPIDER, the original SPIDER, yeah. which was the S&P 500, SPIDER was an acronym for S&P Depository Receipts. This is
0: probably a good point uh, to interject and say that S- State Street actually invented the ETF. I mentioned that a couple weeks ago on a, a previous episode uh, when we talked about exchange-traded funds. Actually, I think I mentioned it a couple times. You guys invented you invented it in the United States. That's correct. Yep,
1: back in 1993, uh, the tick SPY, the very first ETF. It's also today it's the largest uh, and most traded in the world.
0: So so, uh, today that that acronym still lives on as the brand of ETFs for State Street.
1: That is correct. We've just used it as a brand. Uh, for the remaining uh, of our ETF lineup.
0: Okay. Yep. So I guess one of the things that I wanted to talk to you about, because I've done a couple different things on mutual funds and ETFs, is, and you have intimate knowledge of this, State Street has mutual funds as well, but you know, primarily known for their ETFs, at least for the consumers, is the advantages, pros and cons of the mutual fund versus ETF world.
1: Yes. Yeah. So the biggest advantage um, is that ETFs, we... We refer to it as low cost, which means there's a there's a cost to owning any single fund, whether it be an ETF or a mutual fund. In the case of SPY, the mm-hmm. ETF that we discussed, it's nine basis points, and a basis point is basically one one hundredth of a percent. So, so n-
0: nine nine cents on the dollar.
1: That's exactly right. Yeah. yeah exactly.
0: So in contrast to mutual funds, which are, I mean, I I'd, I think this probably would we would say it's hard to know exact what depends on the metric you want to look at, right? Because you have active mutual funds, which are much more expensive. You're talking, you know, a dollar or you know, 10 cents for every dollar uh, for index funds and significantly more than that for active funds, right? So are you, are you talking the main benefit of the ETF being the overall the fact that they're lower cost or in comparison to mutual funds, which can be active or passive or indexed, they're even less so than index mutual funds?
1: They're even le- they can be even less so than index mutual funds. And actually, it, it's a lot less than $0.09 cents on the dollar. It's yeah. more like nine-tenths of one cents. cent yeah. on the dollar. Um, but yeah, the benefit is, and we'll talk about the S&P 500, is with a single trade, yeah. you own the entire U.S. marketplace. You own basically 90% of the entire U.S. marketplace with that one single trade. Right.
0: So uh, I, I, as... I think we've kind of seen this play out. The advantages of ETFs essentially speak for themselves because of the market growth that they've, I guess, experienced and outpaced mutual funds on growth, right? Do you want to talk about that at all? I guess the proliferation of ETFs?
1: Yeah. So really, the the again, we think that the gravitation towards ETFs have been twofold. So the biggest has been the cost advantage. So again, when you buy an active mutual fund, you have to pay somebody to manage that fund. And that cost is high. They have yeah. analysts. Uh, Etc. But when you think about how many active professional investors around in the world, there's a lot. They're yeah. all competing against one another. So the the data basically supports that it's very difficult to be above average for a long period of time. Right. And in fact, what ends up happening is everybody becomes average at that at some well, point. Well, there's a point. lot of
0: smart yeah. people competing against each other in the investment world.
1: That's exactly right. right. There's not really
0: any dumb people that are running mutual funds. Right. Right. It's just by, you know, there's there's just not. And so it's super competitive. And and when it gets super competitive, it it reverts to the average. And so I don't know why you would want to pay extra for average when you can buy the average for a fraction of a dollar, right? Yes. A fraction of a fraction. Yeah. And
1: that low cost basically helps with performance. The more a fund charges, the harder it is to have a better return because you need to take that away from the investor. Right. That cost.
0: So we talked a little bit uh, in a previous episode I did about the free trade world we're living in now where we're most of the major custodians it doesn't cost anything to buy or sell ETFs. So then what are the key differences you're looking at? And I, I know there, there can be concerns with certain ETFs around liquidity, whether like I, you can you can try to sell it, but it doesn't mean there's always somebody there wanting to buy it or you might not get the fair price. So what does that mean if, if you have a liquidity advantage or disadvantage?
1: It simply means it's the popularity of, of that product and how much it's traded among buyers and sellers. When there's a lot of buyers and sellers for a particular product, mm. then everybody basically the charge for that product has to be very close to its price. Right? So you think about just anything you might buy in the store that you could get at Target or Walmart. When you see it in every store, the price is generally the same. Right. But when you see a product that doesn't exist maybe in one of those stores, the cost becomes a little bit higher. So when we talk about liquidity, yeah. the more liquidity, the less the cost to actually buy and sell that ETF. Yeah. The lower liquidity, the higher the cost because there's not a lot of people who want to buy and sell and supply and demand so, economics.
0: how would a normal everyday consumer that just wants to go out and buy an ETF and and set it and forget it, which is something I recommend, buy it, reinvest, you know, auto invest, you know, good financial planning practices or not, get in there and day trade? Is how would they know whether they're buying an ETF with sufficient liquidity or demands? Right? How how, how would a normal investor know that?
1: It would really come down to the spread. So, if you have a brokerage account and okay. you go to buy a particular product, you'll see. Two quotes. Now you'll see a quote, uh, the bid quote, yep. what it's cost to buy, and the ask quote, which is what someone wants to sell it okay. to you for.
0: Why don't they just call it buy and sell? <laughs> I don't <laughs> the know. The buy quote and the sell quote. <laughs> so they get the big bid and the ask, which is buy and sell quote. And the spread is, so let's use a specific example. If I was going to buy this beer and the, the purchase price is $10, Yep. the sell price is-
1: Higher than that.
0: So the, so right. the sell- they want more.
1: Whoever's selling it wants more than it's actually worth. So the
0: person selling it wants ten dollars and two cents. Exactly. And a two cent spread is not that large on this beer, but if you're trading tens of thousands of mutual fund shares or even a smaller a much smaller number, but that's your retirement
1: savings, it matters. Absolutely it matters. It can we've talked to some of our clients who say trading costs are as much as $40,000 of their practice over one particular year.
0: So that's financial advisors that are trading yes. you know, for all of their clients, which that's something I know in my practice I pay attention to, but it really makes that whole $4, $5 trade fee you know, negligible. Now that's zero, but there's other costs involved in trading.
1: Absolutely they are, and that's what the spread is. The difference right. between what a buyer wants to um, buy that product for versus yeah. what the seller wants to sell it for.
0: So I think that's where with you know, and it depends ETF to fund to fund and, and, and strategy to strategy. But some of your guys' products claim to have the best liquidity there is, right? I mean, like SPY, SPY is the largest ETF. So there's mo- most people trading it, right?
1: Yes. I mean, it's clear. I mean, the data actually is, it yeah. tells us that it is the most traded ETF on any one particular day. And the same with our, we have a sector lineup, from yeah. technology to utilities, um, and they're among the most traded uh, ETFs in the market. Which means
0: you're not guaranteed to, but much more likely to get a, a thinner spread, therefore a lower cost of trading. Correct. Right. Correct. And and then you know you're buying the market at not just a, a low cost from an expense ratio, but but the, you know trades are free now, and then you have a, a you're buying it for a fair fair bid ask spread, buy sell spread.
1: That is correct. Right? Yeah.
0: So, I one thing I wanted to talk with you about because you've been you've been in the investing you've been with State Street twenty five years. Is that how long you've been in the investing business?
1: It is. Yep. Yeah, right out of college. Right, right out of college. college. Okay. Yeah. All right. Where'd
0: you Where'd you go to school?
1: Uh, I went to school at Bridgewater State University. Never heard of it. Yep. <laughs> and did my <laughs> uh, my graduate work at the University of Massachusetts.
0: Okay. Yep. Um. So you, university you. BA there or would you end up getting yep
1: I got a Bachelor of Science at uh, Bridgewater State okay um, almost completed a minor in math a few yeah. short of that um, And I then never would have guessed, guessed you were MBA. a math guy yeah, yeah.
0: so I had MBA <laughs> so then you got hired uh, at State Street out of school so um, one of the things I wanted to chat with you about because uh, the, the premise of this podcast is a lot of Um, things around smart personal finance decisions. And I also, I love having entrepreneurs on and talking to them about their story and, 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 um, and, and going down that route of entrepreneurship. But when it comes to smart personal finance decisions, this happens to me more since I started this podcast now than even when I was just starting as a financial advisor and all my friends knew and were asking me questions, I get asked all the time about trading individual stocks. And I almost always recommend that individual investors shouldn't just because I don't think a retail individual person has the uh, capabilities to trade individual stocks in their IRA account
1: and end up better off. Uh, Any thoughts on that? I I mean, I can tell you a personal story, actually. I would Uh, love a personal story. A personal story. Uh, so I'm I'm in the business. I should know you know uh, exactly what's going on in the marketplace, and um, I've learned the difference between a good investment and a good idea. So back uh, back in the tech bubble, you mm-hmm. know, in the in the late '90s, a lot of companies. Um, I like uh, that. IPO-ing. I like
0: that term. I got to interrupt you. Good idea versus good investment.
1: Good idea versus good investment. Yeah. So there was a company came out. Uh, I can't remember the name to be honest, but the ticker was HITS. H-I-T-S. Okay. What they did was they uh, you could buy your music online. Yeah. And you download it. And I thought, "Oh my gosh, this is it. This is what people are going to do." Yeah. And I was right. The company went bankrupt about 3 years later. Yeah. After that, and then probably 3 years after that, iTunes was born. So, I had the right idea, right? Uh, But I had the wrong investment, and I had the wrong company,
0: and the wrong Um, timing, (laughs) and the wrong and the wrong timing. Yeah, Um, there's no difference between early and wrong and investing. Uh,
1: And that's that's the story I learned is that you know a great idea isn't necessarily a great uh, investment. And today I utilize ETFs and funds themselves um, for my personal. Finance uh, decisions I mean, in retirement.
0: And you're high, I mean, you have an MBA. You've been in the investing one of the biggest investment management companies in the entire world. You work for and meet with financial advisors on a regular and institutional clients on a regular basis. And you just buy ETFs, not individual stocks.
1: I do, and, I, and I'll tell you, it's in it, the reason for it is. I don't possibly have enough time to know what companies might be the next Amazon, might be the next Microsoft, but they exist, and when you buy the market, you'll own them.
0: Right. You'll own them. I mean, we always hear the story of somebody that that picked those, but it's extremely difficult. It's extremely difficult extremely difficult. I have a, uh, there was a, one of the smartest investment people I have ever met. Uh, he, he's an academic, but he owns an investment firm as well. His name's Gary Miller. And, uh, he was telling stories about, to me one time, we were having a a few of these, a few beers. And, uh, when he started in the investment business, um, he was handling research and he was essentially an analyst. And he said, he looked at this company called Blockbuster in the early days. (laughs) And he said, I just think that at some point, somebody's going to be able to take their remote controller and click it at the TV and watch whatever they want, right? And not have to go to the movie, you know, go to this movie store and rent movies, which is a favorite pastime for us millennials. Now, I'm surprised movie stores haven't come back. It's about the experience. Anyways, he said at that time, if he, if he had the money, he would have shorted the stock because he thought it was such a bad investing idea. And he was actually right right? But he was about 20 years early because Blockbuster did phenomenal for a very long period of time. And then Netflix came into our world, right? And so one of the smartest people was not wrong. He was just early. And really, there's no difference.
1: No, there's no difference. And I practice what I
0: preach too. I I pretty much just buy ETFs and uh, auto invest and forget about it. And I don't look at my investments very often at all, other than to look and see if I can up my contributions because, you know, that's the idea is you can increase that over time. So uh, we talked about free trades. We talked about liquidity a little bit. Um, I was, you know, I always love the personal stories. And so you've been working with financial advisors for 25 years. You Have you been in this role for 25 years? This or no? year,
1: this role I've been in for about 12 years. Okay. yeah.
0: So any, any uh, good financial advisor stories you'd like to share with the, the audience here? So I, I put him on the spot. This is not the, scripted. The
1: sophistication <laughs> among advisors is as wide as the Grand Canyon. Uh, you have some that are very sophisticated, like yourself, who really know the markets. He's and then you have those who aren't as sophisticated, <laughs> who, truly, um, who, who, who truly want to do the best that they want for their clients, but aren't as sophisticated, you know, uh, uh, as you might be. And so you know um that's why it, it's really important to to do your due diligence you know when yeah. seeking out uh, an advisor because they're they're not all the same
0: so i guess if you were looking for a financial advisor or, or you had to find one for your your brother or aunt or somebody what would you be looking for
1: yeah so the first would be um you know how long have they been in the business you know uh, are they seasoned do they manage money for other people like myself you yeah. know, was it a referral? Similarities. Um, similarities. Also, do they have designations? Designations, you know, do matter um, overall. So, and, and they basically tell you, you know, how competent that person might be right. um, for this field uh, in particular.
0: Things like the, so. the letters after your name. That, that, that yep. stuff matters. It yep. it's, takes a lot. If nothing else, it takes a dedication to education to get those. Right. It doesn't necessarily mean that they might be smarter, but this certainly means that they're willing to take the time to learn to become a better advisor over
1: time. Absolutely. And, you know, yeah. those
0: credentials. Right. Yeah. So we're we're state street today. So you guys invented the the ETF, essentially, um, and you have the biggest ETF in the world, SPY. Um, And and you have, uh, I don't know the number of products for ETFs or mutual funds, I I guess, just kind of lay that out for me. Where are you guys at? Where where do you guys fit in the market space?
1: So we're the third largest uh, asset manager in the world. um, And we're the third largest ETF provider. Okay. Um, in terms of the, is
0: that a coincidence? The third of both. Third largest. <laughs> uh, <side? laughs>
1: it's it's not only because yeah. on uh, on the other side we manage a lot of cash, so money market type. Okay. Uh, money. So very different than the ETF marketplace. Right. But right. yeah, we I have well over uh, 120 ETFs today. Um, overall, about close to 600 billion. 120 uh, ETFs. Yeah, over, over yeah, really?
0: over 120 ETFs. How many are U.S. Uh, consumers able to purchase like U.S.
1: based all of them oh really yeah that's I'm not talking about uh, overseas funds at all this is just the U.S. business yep so Anything from individual sectors to some of our newest uh, ETFs that we've we've launched recently that look at disruptive technologies like robotics or artificial intelligence.
0: I guess that brings up another interesting topic because we're seeing a lot of ETFs. Originally, and it's because maybe because of where SPY started with it just tracking the S&P 500 index, is we're seeing a lot of ETFs pop up that are now in a position where they're buying niches, right? And not just sectors, right? Like I've seen medical marijuana or marijuana cannabis ETFs. You you mentioned, um, you mentioned,
1: uh, what was it that you just mentioned? Uh, Artificial intelligence. Artificial, I wanted to say
0: biotech, but, (laughs) and internet of things. And you've seen all these ETFs. Is there a, a place for all of them? I mean, it just seems like once you start carving up the, the, the indexes, uh, too much is there just a niche for each one of these
1: so for investors, we let them decide because yeah. it, for uh, if they don 't invest in them and they just kind of linger, they eventually close, so we yeah. really let the market uh decide um, on that, but there are folks who you know have certain investment beliefs and philosophies, and those etFs meet those beliefs and yeah. philosophies um, so, so you, sometimes they can do well sometimes they don 't do so well
0: yeah, well I mean when you start getting into specifics. I mean, that's, that's a person that might, for whatever reason, have, uh, have the need for that. Right. You know, like, yeah, Yeah. you know, I bet Elon Musk would be more willing to buy, um, uh, artificial intelligence ETF than a, um, guns and ammo one. I don't know. And so, yeah, there, there's, there's obviously if you're taking them to market, there's a market for them, but I, I, you know, I, I've just, and this is just a personal belief, been a believer in buying buy the whole damn market. Right, And you can do it so cheap, right? Like 0.03% is the cost of of your guys' total stock market ETF.
1: Yes, I would completely agree with that because really, no one has a crystal ball, essentially. I mean, the companies that dominated 20 years ago don't dominate today. When we think about the biggest company 15 years ago or 20 years ago was General Electric, which is now the 60th largest company, and in fact, 20 years ago, Google didn't what exist. What a fall from grace! Amazon didn't yeah. exist. Amazon wasn't even the S and P 500. Um, Apple hadn't invented the iPhone, and I think was ranked 160th in terms of the size. And yet today, those are all top five of the largest companies in the world.
0: You know what I find interesting about almost all those examples that you gave is a growth in uh, a, a growth in their market cap, right? Because you know they're sure. the biggest names, right? And so inherently, when you buy a market cap weighted index because a lot of indexes weight the biggest companies the largest values yes. you end up under undercutting the smaller companies right because you're not you're not putting as large a percentage on them
1: that is that is true but yeah. again you have to think of what market cap is market cap is basically the value of a company right right? Apple is worth almost a trillion dollars, but it's worth almost a trillion dollars because they make almost $250 billion a year. That's so they're large, for, uh, they're large for a reason. Yeah, The absolutely. great thing about market cap weighted though, is that a co- as a company does better and does uh, increasingly, you know, their price goes up, mm-hmm. it becomes a bigger and bigger part of the index. So Very you true. captured the entire Amazon growth story in the S&P 500 because you owned it when it was smaller, and as it grew, it became a bigger and bigger part of the portfolio.
0: And I will, I guess, and I'm not a huge fan of market cap weighted indexes, just overall, but that's a debate and a longer conversation. But if you bought the Russell two thousand and you bought the S and P five hundred, uh, you know S and P mid cap index, you might have owned it long, long before Jeff Bezos knew what he had. True. right? That is, true. I mean, yeah. you you owned it before it even got in the S and P five hundred because Russell two thousand is a small cap index, so you own those really small companies, and you know the Russell uh, mid cap index is a is an index that essentially has you know, middle sized companies. So as these companies are going up the indexes, which is where I've talked before in the podcast about asset allocation, is owning different types of uh, index funds and different types of ETFs. Don't, you you know, you can very simply just buy a total stock market fund and you're gonna get fine exposure. You're gonna get exposure. Uh, and, And, but when you buy, you know, mid-cap indexes and small-cap indexes, and we haven't even really talked about international at all, you're starting yeah. to buy more and more and more of the market, and it's a huge market out there. And so when you talk about, you know, there's everybody, when you hear the market on the way home and you hear the NASDAQ, the Dow Jones, and the S&P 500, that's a really a pretty tiny footprint as to the number of companies. But they're big.
1: Right. Yes. yes, yes. And asset allocation is the most critical part of... Um, you know, yeah, portfolio management. It's not it's market really, timing. It's, it's not market timing. <laughs> no one wanted to get in and it's out. It's not market timing. Yeah. So, what
0: do you think of the beer? I like it. Yeah, I like
1: it. Yeah, it's Austin Brothers, nice and crisp.
0: So, I picked this up because, uh, well, one, as as the listeners, the regular listeners know, I prefer my Michigan beers unless somebody sends me something from out of state. But um, I actually have a, a, a good story with this beer. Is that the first time I ever tried it was on draft. Up at the 45th Parallel in beautiful Alpena, I went up there uh, fishing with my cousin. We uh, limited out by noon, so we, we we hit the boat launch and we found a, a local eatery that happened to uh, be basically right down the road from Austin Brothers and uh, had Austin so- Brothers 45 or on tap. But... Uh, well, that's going to wrap up this week's of episode of Prosperity by the Pint. Thanks for tuning in. Don't forget to subscribe to Spotify, iTunes, YouTube, Facebook, wherever you listen. That's where we are.
1: Cheers. Thanks for coming, Mike. Bye.